It's hard to be a pastor. In fact, in the two decades I've worked as a songwriter, storyteller, author, advocate, and pastor, the weight and difficulty of the entire list before it pales in comparison to how difficult I've found it to pastor wisely and lovingly. So I find myself in sincere awe of women and men who do that job well and with joy. Sarah Heath is a writer and a podcaster. She delves into woodworking and restoration projects. She is also pastor of First United Methodist Church in Costa Mesa, California. She does all of these things in a way that invites viewers, listeners, and readers to enter in, celebrate, and learn, which is to say, she does them all with joy. I enjoyed my conversation with Sarah Heath. I think you will as well. Check it out. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. What is like? Uh, uh, what does your day look like? What is like? How how are you structured right now? Like you're on you're on this podcast. Sure. It's 10 a.m. What what are you doing? What's, yeah. What happens for you today? Uh, well, for today, I woke up early to take my dog for a walk. You just heard him shake his collar because <laughs> Tenor, uh, anytime I get on a podcast, he starts shaking his collar, which is only funny because he's like the most docile, sweet dog. Like, and then, but he'll eat, he'll eat when I'm on a podcast. Um, <laughs> like as soon as he hears me talking, he like comes over, I'm going to take his collar off really quick. Um, oh, here you go, bud. So yeah, today I uh, got up early, take him for a walk. Usually I start by writing a gratitude list while I walk. I have this app that I write down everything that I'm grateful for from the day before to kind of set the tone Hmm. for the day. And then I usually do um, some sort of exercise. I've been doing yoga lately because I've had plantar fasciitis, which is the worst. Um, Yeah, I'm a runner, so that's that's been no good. That is like one of the primary nemeses of joggers and runners. Yeah. So I'm trying to, uh, recognize that I have allowed my body to get too tight. And so I've been doing yoga, which has been really fun, but there's a great online yoga teacher named, uh, yoga for Adrienne. Well, her name is Adrienne, but uh, the show is called the yoga for Adrienne. Um, but she's just great and I really, really enjoy her. So I do that every day and then I'm doing stretches from a physical therapist. And then I usually just jump into work today. However, I had signed up to be part of an, uh, each hour of the day is covered in prayer for our city. And, um, so I signed up to do that. And so I prayed for an hour this morning, read through your book. Um, that's been really helping me kind of center during this time. So, um, using that again and imagery and then, um, an app to finish out the hour. So that was good. Um, and then came back to a bunch of really difficult text messages. We've got, mm. we're kind of finally getting to the, where we know people who know people, um, you know, in the, in the coronavirus outbreak. So got one. What's that, what's that uh, look like for you? Who, uh, right now it looks like one person who goes to my uh, church, who is a school teacher, just found out that the father of one of their children in her class, uh, 38 passed away. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And so uh, it looks like that. It also looks like uh, people who are uh, older and concerned about their parents who are in a nursing home. Like we've got one woman who's 99 and in a nursing home and is really confused about everything that's going on. So chatting with her a bit, you know, as well, um, trying to encourage her and that kind of fun stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, dealing with 
you know, uh, a friend of mine's mother passed away from pneumonia and we're not sure if it's related to COVID or not, but it's just, you know, there's just a lot of that going on. So it was good that I started my day kind of separated from that um, so that I could take a minute to just sort of jump in. And then also coordinating the gathering of magazines because I am going to tomorrow to do um, stop by a senior living center to drop off some food from an organization we work with and magazines and all that sort of stuff. So that's, you know, the no contact drop off coordination. The other yeah. day I was a toilet paper runner. So my <laughs> life has been really sad. Then I have to finish my sermon and record it and yeah. uh, my Easter sermon of all things. And yes. uh, that's kind of what it looks like today. That a lot of that and then working on my own podcast stuff. So yeah. that's a ton, that's I, a ton happening in your day. Yeah, there's lots to do. Oh, also getting my um, <laughs> sweet dog's nail trimmed. There's also, so that's part of, of course, there's always, the old, there's, also, there's always an also when you've got a dog. Yeah, he's the best, but I am so worried about his nails getting too long and um, it's happened, like his nails grow really quickly Yeah. Um, for whatever reason and he will not let me do them. And so I was really concerned going into this because – he has to get them like trimmed every six weeks. Uh, and I was like, what do I do? You know, and so I called. It turns out they're doing curbside pickup of your dog for the grooming, just so you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, and by they, uh, those are the folks in your town. I think around here, there's a different curbside pickup for dogs. Where, so where are you Where are you calling from right now? Like the town you're actually in, where are you? Where are you? Costa Mesa, You're California. in Costa Mesa, which for folks who don't know where that is, that's sort of San Diego-ish. No, actually. No, it's, it's sort of LA-ish. It's between. It is exactly between. It's exactly between. Like coastally. Like imagine Newport Beach. It's like a mile inland from Newport Beach. So we're like, uh, you know, there's Laguna, Newport, um, you know, as you Long Beach, we're kind of inland from uh, Newport Beach, but we're fairly close to the ocean ourselves. Are you from Southern California? No. Where are no. you from? I am from Canada. My home and native land is Canada. <laughs> I was born in Canada. And then when I was 14, our family moved to Mississippi, grew up in Mississippi, uh, went to high school there, kind of. And then spent my summers in Canada until I was 20, working at a Christian summer camp, and then moved, or 21, I guess, uh, went to undergrad at the University of Southern Mississippi, um, where Brett Favre went, um, and then went, <laughs> you know, got to claim that. Yeah, you do. Then I went to Duke Divinity School. So I was in North Carolina for three years and then came out to California in 2005. So I've been here, it's actually now, officially this year. This is the place I've lived the longest. Yeah. So does it does that feel does Costa Mesa feel like home or do you still consider yourself Canadian? No. I mean, there's not a chance you consider yourself from Mississippi, but uh, like wh- where's kind home? Of. Do you really? Yeah, so I feel like I am my best guy friend says that I have an accent that he calls brother Canadian. So British Southern oh, wow. Canadian. Oh my gosh. So my mom is British, that also is part of our story. Um so I don't have this I think a lot of people have the sense of home and I don't have that. Uh, people are home to me um, versus mm. places necessarily. There's a home feeling. Um, I was in Canada two summers ago and um, a dear friend of mine was like, I just want to take you to your house where you grew up. And I grew up on a lake. And so he 
we took a boat and it was like raining and then the like clouds part, it was like a movie. And all of a sudden I just started weeping, which was very surprising for him because I'm just not a crier, but I was crying and he was like, what's going on? Like, come here, what's going on? And I said, I have a home. This is home. Wow. And I realized that for me, I haven't had a home in so long. Um, you know, part of our deal as United Methodist is they move us around. And so, yeah. um, you never, even when you're in a place, there's not a sense of permanence. And so hmm. I didn't realize how much that longing was in my heart and soul to feel home. Wow. And um, I think it's a big part of what I try to create even. It's like trying to manifest a sense of home. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like, you know, when I go home, quote unquote, at Christmas to Mississippi, um, there are things about that that feel like home, but I definitely feel a little bit like an alien Um hmm. It, you know, visiting and beloved people are there for sure, but it doesn't have that same sense of home. Definitely when I'm in Canada and Toronto and I'm near my aunts and uncles, that feels like home. Yeah. Um, but I don't have that sense of like, I grew up, you know, cause we moved and I, I kind of almost relate to, you know, not quite as bad, but like army brat kind of kids. Like I get the like sense of I don't know where I'm from. Um, and it confuses other people too. A lot of my, my friend recently said like, you just have like Midwest sensibility. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, he's from, uh, Minnesota. So it was like a compliment. Like you're just kind of like, you know, you're just a, you know, very, uh, what's the word? Like kind of realistic and, uh, okay. practical, you know, practical. Yeah. And it was really funny cause I think of myself as sort of a creative dreamer, but I was like, yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for that. So yeah, I don't, I'm not from California, but I definitely, there are parts of it that feel like home. There is a lot of it that culturally doesn't quite feel like home. I do like that. There's so many different types of people that you can kind of find your niche here in some ways. Yeah. So What do you do then? Like, how do you create or facilitate a sense of place then for you where you are? Like, like having a sense of rootedness. Are there practices? Is there a way you organize your physical space? Like, you know, yeah. belong, belonging where you are? Because in order to do, and we'll get to like what you do with your, with your time, with your life as a pastor. Um, but like having a sense of rootedness and place are there are there yeah. things you have to do, things you choose to do to root yourself to like to yeah to, like how do you create a sense of place and belonging for yourself if it's not just offered to you you know socioeconomically politically by your environment? Yeah, I think for me, uh, you know, you always hear that like people nest. I'm the type of person that if I am moving into a space, I um, I immediately like to sort of get everything organized and have things up that hold meaning for me. Um, I'm definitely not uh, someone who likes having a lot of stuff. So, hmm. um, but I do have items like from my grandparents. I have a picture of my grandparents' wedding day that I hmm. bring with me everywhere um, in England. And I have, you know, items that feel grounding or feel like home. Um, I also have people in my life like touchstones that they don't live around here, but even speaking to them. So this time for now, for all of us where we're separated from people, like connecting to them feels 
grounding and um, kind of holds me in place. So it's this weird sense of like, oh, uh, I everything's okay. I can talk to these mm. people, um, connect to those people. Um, and I think there are ways that making space for me and making it um, a decluttered space, a space that um, feels like it's home and it's also uh, somewhere that doesn't clutter my brain or, um, make me feel, um, yeah, overwhelmed by it. So like, yeah. I hate when you first move and there's boxes everywhere. So I'm kind of famous for staying up forever and just unpacking. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I just like, I'll hang pictures on the wall. I just like to get, I like things. It takes me a long time to decide where pictures go. I don't know what that neurotic nature is in me, <laughs> but like, Getting things set so that everything has a place yeah. then makes me feel like I have a place. Hmm. Um, making a bed, like if I'm traveling, having, you know, summer camps and things like that. Once I made my bed, I felt like, okay, this is this is where I am. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of uh, thing. I, I wouldn't say there's like a, it's not like I meditate in a space and then it feels like home. I think it's just sort of the the little things around me and then, you know, communicating with the people that I love so much and, and the realization that I didn't lose them just cause I'm not in proximity with them. Cause That's I think good. sometimes my fear is that, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be forgotten or whatever it might be. Uh, there is something about connecting with people, um, that's really important for me. And so I've had friendships that, you know, people who knew me when I was a child in Canada, we still talk. Um, so people kind of, for me, are those touchstones. That's good. Did you, you were, you went to Duke Divinity. Was the plan, I guess this is, it's kind of twofold question. Was the plan to become a a pastor and if so like when did that happen in in your heart your mind when did when did when did you land on like i want to pastor a congregation of people and i want to i want to lead spiritually socially from up front like was was that the plan did you is it the kind of thing where you sort of fell into it how did that happen when did it when did you sort of land there you know for me i i always think that the divine um and i kind of have a like she can only handle so much. Like, uh, I'm such a planner, but I'm also someone who, if I, I'll overthink it, I'll plan it to death. Um, and then, or I get nervous about not planning it. So I, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to be all through college. Like my freshman, sophomore year, I was telling the story yesterday. Um, I ended up being an undeclared major, but I had a scholarship uh, for being a leader in high school because I did quite well in high school and super involved in sports and extracurricular activities and whatnot. So I ended up getting a leadership scholarship and they require you to take these classes to sort of help you find your major and um, understand yourself as a leader. And I floundered like for two years about like what I wanted to do. So the funny part of me is that my fallback was like, if I can't figure out what I want to be, I'll just like be a doctor because I can do biology really well, which is funny when you think about it. Like <laughs> your fallback, artistic, my fallback, <laughs> my artistic side. I have like this really artistic side and then I have this super nerdy like biology side. But the side that is like lacking is the math side. So like there's yes. a lot about going into medicine that would have been real hard for me. Yeah. Um, but, but I ended up taking like 
uh, and a lot of animal behavior courses, which has been actually helpful in the church because I thought maybe I'll be a vet. And I did all my observational hours while I was an undeclared major at a veterinary clinic. And I thought, I like this, but it's there's something missing. And so I was hmm. on a youth retreat with, I was a youth volunteer. And I noticed too, like, uh, I had started spending most of my free time with the youth group that I volunteered for. Not my sorority, not the, like, um, I played a lot of club sports, not my club sports. Um, I was spending most of my time with these teenagers that I just loved pouring into and talking to you. And I was on a retreat with them. And this one kid said to me, uh, Davis said, Sarah, you know, you're the type of person, like you can talk to us about music. So at the time I was like a sorority girl was really into punk rock and hardcore, um, which is, I know weird. Um, you know, you can, you can do all of those things and talk about those things in such a way that, um, we all feel like we can relate to you. Mm. And, that's different than like, you know, you can talk to the sporty kids, you can talk to all those kids. And I'm sure from my previous story, you can tell, like, I've always felt like an outsider, but all of a sudden to feel like, oh no, like having all those diverse interests made me capable of relating to these teenagers. And he said, it makes it easier for us to talk to you about God. And it was like a moment where I was like, huh, it's good. And I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't necessarily remember every conversation I've ever had, but I definitely like that conversation stuck with me. And then I was going on a retreat with my own campus ministry group that I was a participant in. And I said to the pastor, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm supposed to go into ministry. And she said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've all thought you were supposed to go into ministry, but like, we wanted you to come upon it on yourself. Like we didn't want you to feel like it was forced upon you. So I really still wasn't sure. And so I applied to Duke, which at the time was a really, and this continues to be a really hard school to get into. It was one of the hardest seminaries. Yeah. And I, but I had no theological background. And so I applied and part of me, I think thought maybe God will like give me an out Hmm. and I won't have to do it. Um, and because at the time I was like, I want to be like an artist or whatever. And part of that is I had taken a aptitude test. And this is the funny part of the story. So I take this aptitude test because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And she said, this has never happened before. You scored absolutely equal across. You can do anything. But what I heard is like, you can do nothing. Um, <laughs> That's so good. And then she said, she looked at me and she's this wonderful Scottish woman. And she said, Sarah, you're such a you know, great designer, you should design the interior of vet clinics. Cause I was, I had all my veterinary hours and I just looked at her like, Whoa. that is the most aggressively specific advice anyone has ever given. And talk about yeah. a niche. Um, yeah. Full circle, just interviewed someone on my podcast whose mom used to be an interior decorator for um, <laughs> dental clinics. So there is that niche. There yes, is a niche. Anyway. Yeah. I ended up uh, making a long story even longer. I ended up getting into Duke and really feeling like legally blonde. And it was the first time in my life people didn't want to study with me. I was so used to being the person everyone wanted to study with. And it was really hard. Why didn't, like, people, I wanted to, why, why didn't people want to study with you? Because I literally knew nothing about the topic. And I was probably the one who was like, guys, I don't know, even know what that word means. And I think, um, you know, they would want to study with me because we were friends and whatnot. But I really felt like for the first time I wasn't as helpful as I had been in the past. Like I was like, oh, and I felt like I just, I didn't look like a seminary student. You know, I felt like a sorority girl who'd been like tossed into the, um, 
into the lion's den or like I, I literally felt like legally blonde. And yeah. um, I slowly kind of found my group there. I went to a bunch of punk rock shows my first couple of weeks and that helped. Um, and then I, I kind of, yeah, I, in the midst of it, if you read my journals, I'm like, I just want to do college and campus ministry. Not even sure I want to be a pastor. Um, I was talking about going to art school like all these things, right? Yeah. It was really funny. I ended up taking art school classes while I was there. And at the same time, I kept doing well in the places where I didn't think I would do well. So one of those examples is I didn't, like I like publicly speaking, but preaching felt like, whoa. And so it was like one of the last classes I took and the professor stopped me in the hallway and said, Sarah, like, why didn't you um, turn in your video for the preaching competition? And I was like, oh, no, I'm not a preacher. This is a, like one of our African-American uh, like teachers and professors who's been there forever, who's incredible. And he said, he just like turned on his heels and said, woman, you preach like a black man and walked away. <laughs> and I was like, okay, uh, I don't know what that means, but thanks. So I went in uh, thinking I would just do college and youth ministry, and I found a job in that. So I got recruited out to California, was doing youth and college ministry. But every time I preach, um, they were getting such positive feedback. They asked me to create a, another service. So I started doing, because what was happening is with some of the people from the main sanctuary were coming to the college group. Hmm. Um, and so I started a service there. And then the bishop called and said, we'd love for you to be a preaching pastor for this like campus of a large, another church because they're merging with this church. And, um, I was like, no, thanks. Um, and he was like, and they, she actually was a female bishop at the time. And she was like, yeah, you know, that's not how that works. Like people will tell you what, to, anyway. Um, and I was like, no, I'm like, I'm good. And, um, I had just started the ordination process and, and that was a long struggle for me as well to decide to become an elder in our denomination. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, she uh, said it again, and and then I was like, "All right, I'm going to do it." And so I originally was for five and a half years. I was a, mm. I left my youth and college kids that I'd been with for five years, and I started doing. I was the preaching pastor at a church and doing their mission stuff, and um, enjoyed it for sure. But it was in a very suburban area, and I'm, it I missed like the the feeling of kind of a more creative city. And I'd lived in yeah. Costa Mesa, which is fairly close because I just needed to be around younger people. Like Costa Mesa is more of like a younger arty vibe. Um, and so I, they asked me to come and be part of a committee where we evaluated uh, churches. Like I call myself a seagull. Like I'd come in, eat your food, poop on you and leave. Like that's kind of what I did. Um, and I did that for our conference. It's like, as my uncle told me, that was what his job was when I was a kid because he's, he's a, a consultant. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And like later I was like, oh, I get it. Yep. Um, so I did that. And for this church that I, Costa Mesa First United Methodist Church had been around since 1912, but they died down to 17 to 27 members. Wow. And they had this big, beautiful building. And so then the I get another call from a district superintendent. And at that point, I kind of felt very like a fish out of water in the church I was serving, but I loved the people so much. And so I was ready for something different. And they said, what would you do with this 
this church if it was yours? And I said, well, let me like gather people I knew from the area. So I gathered a bunch of Costa Mesians and said, hey, like people who had like one guy who'd launched a church and had failed, like different people that I knew had community, like uh, weight and gravity and investment and like people who led the beer and hymns. Um, and we just sat and talked and I was like, all right, like what's your creative idea with what you would do with this church? And they're like, you need to like have a church. Mm. I was like, so a church in a church is what you want me to bring to the decision committee. Mm. This is not that creative, but their point was like, we want a church that is inclusive, um, at every level. And also a church that, um, you know, does have faith practices for people who have felt like they're none and done with the tradition. And so I was like, I can kind of get behind that. So I proposed it and I think they were, um, it took them a year to decide. And there were some really difficult decisions over that year that maybe probably weren't the decisions I would have made for the community, but, um, they tore down all their buildings, but the sanctuary. And then I was appointed there and the rest is history. So that's how I became a lead pastor of a revitalization church. And the whole way was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Like I, I don't love like being a, a manager, being a boss, being a CEO, like those things are very difficult for me. Those just aren't great fits. I feel like I'm, I kind of feel a little bit like if you've ever seen the Monty Python Life of Brian movie, he's oh, yeah. like, he's like running away. He's like, I'm not the savior. And they're like, only the savior would say they're not the savior. Yes, yes. And I kind of feel like sometimes I'm like, I'm not your leader. And everyone's like, only our leader would say they're not our yes. leader. Only so the true Messiah would deny his divinity. Yeah. Is actually, yeah. 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 So that's kind of been my story. And I, I think it's an ever evolving one, right? Do you think of yourself as a pastor or do you like, because there's there's these two, they're not necessarily different per se. They can exist in different spheres, but there's leadership and you've, you've written a bit about leadership and you talk about leadership. There's leadership and there are people who are leaders who are not pastors. There are also people who are pastoral and are garbage leaders. (laughs) <laughs> but but at the same time, they like there are ways that, you know, the, there's a truckload, especially in the Christian community and the religious community uh, or culture there. There can be a truckload of overlap. Do you uh, do you think of yourself as a pastor? Do you think of yourself as a leader? Is there a, is, is there a way you would say this is not even necessarily what I do, but this is kind of like identity wise. This is who I am. I'm mm-hmm. a pastor. I'm a leader. How, like, how does that work out in your mind? You know, it's interesting. I think. I see myself as a pastor, but that even when I'm having like faith doubts, which like in my faith has shifted so much over the years um, and in some ways feels like it's sort of uh, in constant flux, but I still see myself as a caregiver for souls Um, and whatever that might look like, even in, in public spheres, I think, you know, I don't think uniquely to what a lot of United Methodist pastors feel, I don't think I'm a forever like local church pastor. Um, hmm. I think it's such a gift and I love it. And I am so sure that where I am right now is where I'm supposed to be for this, this time. Um, but I also know like I, that's not my identity. Um, hmm. but the way that I try to host or, um, actually I was talking to your friend, Scott, our mutual friend, Scott Erickson yesterday. And he yep. said, Sarah, I love the way that you host the community. Hmm. Um, cause he's come and spoken before. And he said, I love that you like create space, you host people. Yeah. Um, and the way you do for I yourself. Think that, yeah. I think that's the, that's the, 
the piece that will always be, I will always be Rev Sarah Heath, whether I'm, you know, officially the lead pastor of a church or not. So I see myself that way as a leader. I, I think I, you know, as much as I sometimes have a, a tough time with that, I think I've always kind of felt like, okay, I can, I can lead this. I think I'm a leader. I'd say I'm not as much of a stellar administrator as I'd like to be. Um, yeah. I, I work really hard on it and I, um, I'm actually doing some work with my own Enneagram stuff, trying to figure out because I, I have a high, I'm either a three with a high two or a two with a high three. Like I, I, which makes it difficult sometimes to lead, uh, because I'm so concerned with people's hearts and, um, hmm. and I, I want the healthiest thing for people sometimes. Yeah. And, um, it's really hard to run a community with that constant worry. Um, and so, yeah, I think. I am both a pastor and a leader. And I think like my actual part of my identity is this caregiver pastoral type. And, um, I don't think that ever goes away. I think that's, and, but I would, I love not being pastor Sarah, which in some settings, you know, sometimes it's just Hmm. really nice to not be seen in that light all the time. I remember part of the part of the training, um, part of my training through the covenant. Um, there, we had this conversation around what they, what they called the power differential. That mm. be, because of the mantle that I that I was taking on, and uh, you know I would have this license to pastor, et cetera, that I would never be uh, just another person in a room, which I actually get and have understood and that's it's often true kind of anyways depending on who you are but specifically with a title the idea was like if you're in the room if you're at the if you're at the party you're mm-hmm. at the ball game if you're mm-hmm. like you're not just another person you walk in and the that you carry that mantle with you and there is always this um yeah power differential and it is a matter of to some degree power and the the, conver- the back side of that conversation was in light of that, like one, recognizing that it's going to save your butt from all kinds of like really wicked crap that could happen if you don't know that that's true about you. Uh, but also like knowing that, like, how do you go about then having healthy relationships? Because you and I both know, because we've, we've been around pastoral leader types, some of the most unhealthy cats I know are folks who are in positions of leadership who have no friends. And yeah. like no intimate connections, no relation, no outlet to say like, this is the shit that's actually happening in my guts, in my heart, my mind, in my life, my body. What's it look like for you uh, outside of obviously, you know, the plantar fasciitis, plantar fasciitis that like you, I mean, you jog, you take care of yourself, you're doing yoga. What's it look like for you to socially, emotionally, like be cared for? Like, what do you need? What do you do? Like. How like let's start about like that, just you and your own I, I don't want to necessarily use the word self-care, but like how do you maintain your emotional social health? And then in a minute, like if you want to dive into this, I want to talk about relationships and like what it looks like for you as a pastor to develop and maintain relationships and like your metrics. But can we start here? Like, how do you go about being staying healthy emotionally, socially? Yeah. <laughs> So for me, it's therapy. Uh, I have um, realized that 
Um, so part of my story that like took me a really long time to figure out is there's a hundred percent a reason why I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my major. And, um, in college I had, um, sort of a, a breaking point where, um, I had, um, gone through a breakup and, uh, I was having such difficulty with it and didn't know how to deal with it. And so I wasn't eating or sleeping. And so, I went into sort of a, a, a really difficult cycle and period, and most people around me didn't know it was happening. Um, I am lucky enough to have really good friends who are like, yeah, this isn't okay. Mm. And because I was Canadian and British, like our understanding of therapy is like every American has a therapist and that's funny, right? <laughs> like they're always dealing with their emotions. And uh, so you kind of, you laugh, you joke, whatever, but you don't go and get help. And I had friends who, you know, were pretty like Sarah, like, you're just pushing your, I can, I can do this was kind of my thought. I can get through this. I can do this. And so I ended up kind of crashing. Uh, and my, my mom and dad came to my apartment. My father's a physician, my mom's a nurse and, uh, ended up bringing me home. And, um, my dad said, you know, if there was something wrong with your thyroid and you were just getting fatter and fatter and fatter, would you let us take you to the doctor? And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, there's something wrong with your brain. <laughs> like hmm. your and I, I had this really, no, there's not kind of feeling. Um, Interesting. And, and then I kind of let the pride down and I said, yeah, there is. And so I ended up, and it's taken me a long time to be even able to process that, but I ended up discovering um, that I have OCD and that literally my brain was spinning. And so from that, I learning that actually gave me power over it and it was great. And I was able to learn some you know, skills and ways of checking in with myself. Well, then two years ago when I was doing my um, podcast kind of self-discovery, I had someone say to me, you know, you have ADHD. And I said, no, I don't. And they said, okay, I want you to tell me what the conversation all around this table. And I said, well, they're talking about this. They're talking about this. She said, right. And you're, and you're talking to me. And I said, yeah, everyone can do that. And she's like, no. Oh, you got tagged. That's so good. And I was like, I was embarrassed and she's like, there's no shame around it. It's a superpower. No, it is. And, and I didn't know, like I, you know, so I went and got tested and the, yeah, it turns out it was. So I discovered in that, like, okay, my, uh, you know, neuroatypicalness requires care um, because I can't turn my brain off. It's not, um, I can't slow down. And I like to appear like I'm, fine and whatever. And they said probably my coping mechanisms for having ADHD as a, as a young woman was very much like in school, I had learned how to count how many times I'd answered a question because I didn't want to be a know-it-all and all those sort of things. So I'd, I'd learned how to manage my symptoms. So it, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't, I was asymptomatic. I didn't look like I was someone with ADHD. And, and I'd talked to people about having difficulty focusing and that kind of stuff. And their answer was always, but you've achieved so much. And I was like, oh, this doesn't seem right. Um, but it, it's been at a cost, an absolute cost. And so um, I started doing therapy then um, when I discovered those things. But I'd also done therapy after um, the loss of a pretty significant relationship um, and kind of working through that. And I've just, again, this year kind of um, started going back again and um just doing some deep inner work because I think that is you need to do that to do the public caring for people um, yes. because there is a sense of like 
you can, I need to be like really rooted in myself, um, and under and know myself. And I think that's something I haven't always known my own needs or wants. And, um, there's lots of stuff behind that and probably gender stuff. There's probably, you know, all those sort of, my mom was really sick when I was growing up. She had cancer. So maybe that has stuff to do with it. Um, she's incredible. Um, so I had all these pieces that, um, I feel like I'm working through and, um, yeah, I, so therapy for me has been really important. Uh, and also like doing self-discovery things like learning about my Enneagram or, you know, which back in the day, this all felt very self-involved. And now I'm starting to see like, it makes me capable of, um, you know, getting a mean tweet. I got a really funny one yesterday or like hearing the things that you're going to hear whenever you're offering your self to the community, um, whether that's local or nationally. And you know, this, you get, you get the feedback too. Yeah. So, um, some of it's positive and some of it's negative. So yeah, that's kind of how I, I take care of that. As far as relationships, it's difficult. I explained it recently to someone who invited me over to dinner and they go to my church and this was before we were self-isolating. Um, (laughs) I was inviting, invited over to dinner and, I just said, look, I've been working a lot. And she said, oh, come over to dinner. And I said, here's the thing I need you to know. You're not asking this of me, but when I hang out with the two of you, I did your wedding, your, yes, you, she helps me do a lot of my, um, she kind of PAs for my speaking engagements and things like that. And so, um, I pay her for that. And so we have that relationship, but like you still go to my church. So pastor Sarah still comes. Yep. Um, yeah. And that, Still Is that feels like working to her. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you've heard this too. I have the um, ability for people to feel like my best friend, and um, and mm-hmm. I really care about people like a lot. But I want to be really careful of um, like self disclosure. And she is yes. someone I tell a lot of things to, and so there is that mutuality there. But there there has to be like certain. Yes. boundaries and limits where I'm not. Um, and sometimes I mess those up where I like, yeah. I don't want to over emote into people who I've been asked and tasked with caring for. And at the same time, I want to be an authentic leader. And so it's a real fine line. Yeah. Um, so I have people in my life who I am in no way their pastor. Um, they've and known the, me for a long time. Are those intentional decisions? Is it like, the, did you recognize that where it was like, the, yeah. the, you looked up and you're like, oh my gosh, this person does not need me in the way that all of these freaking people need me. Or was it a matter of like, did you have to go and and forge new like spaces of relationship? Did you look up and find them or did you have to make it happen? Or was there some sort of combination there? It was literally sitting in a therapist's office and hearing him say, who are your friends who don't expect you to care give? And I was like, and have no affiliation with your church. And I was like, oh, God, that's Did a really you, tough question. So it wasn't um, easy? It, was, was it, it wasn't automatic? It mm. wasn't automatic. But then I did create a list, and that has been helpful to, like, don't try to pastor these people. Yeah. Don't, um, like, you know, uh, show them you're ugly. And some of these relationships started where I was their pastor, and they no longer are either I'm no longer the pastor of that church or, yeah. um, or we worked in an organization together. And, um, 
I had to learn this on my own because unfortunately the way the Methodist church has worked is you're supposed to completely cut off contact with people from your former congregations. Well, that is to me, absolutely not doable in the day of Facebook. And, you know, people follow my work. Um, You know, it's always surprising to me, the people who say, oh, I've been following your work for years and this is what it's meant to me. And you're like, I didn't even know. And so (laughs) who are you like, (laughs) yes, yeah, it's this incredible, like, thank you. And, and it feels like such an honor and a grace, but you just don't know. And so the idea that you have to like form relationships, cut them off, it's just, it's not caregiving for people at all, including yourself. And so, yeah, I, I did do that look up and say, okay, who are the people and how can I, you know, continue to cultivate those friendships where I am not having to be, yeah. a, you know, the spiritual guru or the person who has her shit together. Cause let's be honest, they don't all the time or, you know, um, I, I'm not on the defense because I feel like I need to, you know, somehow legitimize things, whatever it might be like, who are the people you can just be yourself with? And I, yeah. I think one of the tests for that for me was when we were asked to be put into, um, you know, social isolation, or as I like to call it, just physical isolation, because yep. we're all still being social. Um, Very, yeah. I, I had friends that popped in my head that I was like, I wish I was with them. Hmm. And that was really, really telling for me. Yeah. Like, who are the people that I wanted? I've got this great friend who lives in Bend, and she's, you know, I would want to be with her. And my best guy friend lives in Utah. And, and I, again, it's that sense of people are home. And, um, they don't expect I can show. Oh, and I have, I've, you know, in the South, we have this saying like, show your ugly. Like I've shown my ugly to those people and they have 100% proved like they can hold that and do that. And Mm -hmm. my, I would never ask that of people at my church, not because they don't deserve that depth of relationship, but because I, it's like if your therapist were to start crying. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, I had happen one time and it was like, this is not helpful. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, sort of take the same conversation about relationships and connection and, and, and people and talk about relationships online. Like one, one of the things that I'm most interested in is. Uh, yeah. The way people, the way we, uh, the way my friends, my guests actually relate with uh, and engage in relationships and people online. So um, you spend a fair amount of time. A lot of what I know of your work happens over Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You've got a, you have a blog. Uh, you've got a podcast. A lot of what happens, like. You engage with people or you are engaged uh, with by people on phones, on laptops, et cetera. Like you, that's where you connect with a whole truckload of folks. So yeah. one, do, um, do you consider, do you think of those, those relationships as real? Is that, is that an extension of the same? So you, you, you know, you pastor a church in Costa Mesa. Is that an extension mm-hmm. of who you are and of the same work? Does that feel like a different world? Is, is is being online different than being in person? Is it the same? Like, how does that work for you? Is there a line there? That's a great question. Because um, I don't think I've ever thought about it. Uh, maybe because in some ways I think they are similar. Um, in that I'm hoping to 
um, put goodness in the world and help people um, kind of discover their own grace and goodness that I think is in people and discover their own grace and goodness in the spaces that they're in. Um, And, you know, returning home in some ways to their own um, belovedness. And that's kind of my goal of every Sunday as well. Um, And I think that it's an extension of that. And in some ways it feels and hums and feels more like what I was created to do. I haven't invested as much time. Like so much of my online presence is very much, um, unplanned and, um, what do you mean? It's just sort of by that. I mean, like (laughs) it's other people being like, Sarah, when you post that, that's been really helpful. Could you post more of that? So for instance, when I was all the like re, um, development stuff, like about a year ago, people started asking for, more funny videos of me redoing a floor or yeah. more, um, why did you, why did you do it that way? And I realized I was having so many phone conversations with people calling me and saying, Hey, why did you do that thing that way? And so I just like, Oh, I'll just make a video where I just say why I did that thing that way. And then people would say, Oh, I really enjoyed that or whatever it might be. Or like I posted pictures of putting my, um, casters on the bottom of my pews because then everyone can face each other and it, continues the sacred and the sort of the legacy of the oldness of the building, but also like the integrity of it. But it also makes it where it's movable and can be used in more ways. And like right away, it started getting shared with like people all over. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think those relationships have different boundaries in that like, I can't be your pastor um, in that you need someone close. And, um, I had to realize that really quickly. And thankfully I have friends who are further along in that, you know, um, Mike McCarg and Jen Hatmaker and friends of mine who like have done the work in a bigger public sphere than I have. And I've dipped my toe in and then dipped my toe, like, and then jumped out of the water before. Like Mm. it can be, if you're not ready to make those boundaries because I was feeling constantly like I've got to take care of this person. I've, I've got to respond to them every time they write me. And that's part of the ADHD brain, right? You can take me off track really quick. Um, or my feelings were getting really hurt. Um, you know, like one friend retweeted me. I have a friend who's a, he's actually, um, a lead singer of a fairly large band and he, um, they're this band called thrice and they're very niche, but people who know them know them really well. And, um, he reposted something I wrote about female uh, theology, like a theologian, like from way back in the day, it was a quote. And he just retweeted it. And I got so attacked by all of these men who wanted to tell me why I shouldn't be a pastor because of my ovaries. And and it was fine, but it was also like um, exhausting. And Because you took it, what because I, you took it personally? I think just because I was like, really, we're still having this conversation. Um, and also because my friends like went, jumped down his throat pretty, pretty ridiculously, not ridiculously, they care about me and love me and wanted to protect me. Yes. But I t- had to take a little break after that because I, something that breaks my heart more than anything is the division that, mm. that's both in our country and Um, and the people that are feeding off of that division that are othering people so that their platform grows so that there's, you know, I politics right now just really 
drives me bananas um, because there is this lack of proximity in relationships. So people just talk about people as if they're those people. And I'm talking that's both ends of the spectrum. And yes. so that breaks my heart. And so when that happens online, I have to sort of do a gut check and um, and realize like these people don't know me. They don't know what I've done. They don't know who I am. Um, mm. And there's assumptions being made. And I think sometimes I have had online friendships turn into real friendships. So I don't think it the boundaries can't change, but I think it's the awareness of like, you can only be so much for people. And the minute you try to be more than that um, is the minute that you kind of are taking on too much because people have to have local connection as well. And That's so if good. you're trying to like, yeah, if you're trying to like point them towards a more healthy local connection, you can kind of be that gap, that bridge, um, but constantly aware that people need to be connected with real people. I want to I want to throw something at you that sort of uh, um, it kind of lives. It's a question that sort of lives at the intersection of the last three questions that have to do with like. Uh, self-care relationships uh, and presence online you uh, let me pull it up real quick you have this pinned tweet um, hmm. which you uh, says dear brothers in ministry who have uh, uh, dear brothers in ministry uh, who have asked me what can we do to protect the women in our congregation it's the wrong question the question <laughs> is what can we do to empower the women in our midst that's the only way things can change. And then you go on, you have some thoughts about what it looks like for specifically for men, there are pres these prescriptions for men to cons to think more in the direction of empowering women than protecting women. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about like your, um, I'm going to try to ask a, a, a relatively balanced question here. Uh, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like your, your place here with regards to like what what's it look like for you to be empowered? I mean, you can you can even kind of march right down here and, and replicate this if you want to the way you did it online, but or on Twitter. But also, I mean, you are like the way you talked about it a little while ago when uh, you know your friend re retweets your your bit about theology. You are going to and will be like uh, publicly throat punched in ways that m men <laughs> men in ministry won't. And you yeah. like like it's. I think it's fair to say, and stop me if, if I'm getting this wrong. There are challenges that you will face as a as a woman in ministry, as a woman yeah. in general, as a public figure who's a woman. But you're all of the you're all the things. So you're you're not yeah. just a, you're not just you're not just a woman who is in in the public eye. You are leading a congregation, and you are present online, and you're you are propelling a particular. Um, yeah, you have like particular religious uh, perspective. You have all you live at this intersection, and yeah. in all those places, there is a, a a qualitative difference between the challenges you'll face because you're a woman. I will never hear some of those things. I'll get shit for thing for things that I say, but there is a permission that the culture around you has to come after you because of your womanhood. Can you talk about like? Yeah. For for a for for a man who wants to for men who are like, hey, I don't like that for you. I don't like that for women in general. 
I definitely don't want that for for women in uh, in, in positions of leadership. When you talk about being protected, you you don't want just hey let's protect women. You like let's move towards empowerment. Are there ways in which you need or want protection? Yeah, Are there ways in which yeah. like that's different than empowerment? Like talk about that a little. Sure, bit. sure, yeah. So I also recognize my own privilege in that I am a cisgender heterosexual white woman, um, and even though I'm an immigrant, I don't present as an immigrant, right? So mm-hmm. I know that I already also have a different experience than people who have these, those other things. But I also recognize that as a woman, um, the reality that quite often what I have to say is put through a different lens. And, um, it's a, it's a reality that I, I hate is true. Hmm. Um, but it is true. Um, you know, I can, I have to, in some circumstances, um, recognize that I will lead with my education because it allows me to be in the space. Um, and by that, I mean, I'm part of a lead pastor group here in the city and there are such incredible, lovely men, but a lot of them belong to communities where I would not be given, given, I hate that word, but I, I wouldn't be, uh, welcome in the same way. Um, and I Mm. certainly wouldn't be the lead. Um, and so, the the way that I think to think about protection to me, the word even itself sounds like something that you do for someone who is less than. Um, Interesting. And and we don't even know that we're doing it. And I I can do it. Um, I know that I've done it before, where I um, assume that I need to protect in a way that um, kind of uh, makes the person you know, it's, it's an inner assessment. And when you've innerly assessed that you need to, um, protect someone, you're going to treat them as less than, or, um, someone who you're in some sort of power dynamic with, right? We talked about power dynamics earlier. So I think there is this, there's little steps you can take that feel more like including the person, even including them in the care of them. Um, So like when you, uh, you know, when you ask like, how can I empower women? Like ask a woman instead of like, you know, and I've, I've had various brothers in ministry, um, ask that question. And I'm like, the question's kind of like ridiculous. Like, Hmm. no, you, you don't need to, um, yeah. Like what can I do to like, protect women or what can I do to, you know, like a good question is often like, what can I do to actually give a woman a, like a platform? Mm-hmm. And, and that's like actually like down the line of questioning. Um, it's very shocking to me that Christianity is so still stuck in a patriarchy. Like I would say like that is beyond what even the U S that you know, many other places consider a really patriarchal culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, we still have people say that person couldn't win because they're female, not even talking about platform. Um, yeah, which is like an interesting thing. And so I think there's all these little micro things that lead up to this thought. Um, one of the things that I suggest is like, have a woman preach and don't say she's speaking. Like I, Hmm. there are so many mega churches around here that say, Oh, um, you know, so-and-so is going to speak, and it's like, is she or is she going to preach? Because um, right. there's a difference. Yeah. And okay. um, 
and I'm a speaker at events sometimes. Uh, and, and there's, there's kind of a different authority when you're in a church setting or whatever it might be. Um, the other thing is like, do the work of understanding like where even Pauline theology came up with some of that. Cause there's really good scholastic understandings of the original language. There is, um, you know, I, you know, forbid women to, to teach men. It's actually a very, um, specific group of women who, um, like the language is hinting us to like, this is a specific situation. If we don't understand that Paul himself had women that he lists amongst his fellow co-workers in the gospel, if you want to look at that. So like know those things so that when you're like, my heart tells me that like women should be empowered, but I don't know how to do that. Like know that like, okay, well I know these things. And so I can hold that when, you know, so-and-so says whatever it might be. The other thing is, is, this idea of like talking about how super hot your wife is or talking <laughs> like I have not been to a non-denom conference yet that someone hasn't done that or are you kidding me? The no, joke- no, 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 no. Back up. Is that serious? Yeah. Are you completely serious? Completely serious. At some point said my super hot wife or the one who really runs things or, you know, makes some comment about, and yes, that's great that your wife is beautiful. But if I got up there and was like, you know, um, I'm currently unpartnered, but if I got up there and was like, my boyfriend is smoking hot. Can we agree? Like how uncomfortable and weird does that make everyone in the room feel? Um, although now I might do it. Uh, although, pro- you know, although there's... probably not your boyfriend, <laughs> your boyfriend's like Damn, yeah, right. straight. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I don't have, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that constant conversation about even the language we use when we describe women, like she's cute, she's this, and I do it all the time and I receive it. Like I like to hear those things, but how could we use other words to describe women? So it's not protection necessarily. It's like, um, co like you kind of come become a co-conspirator and changing the way people think about it. And you don't even have to do it in a way that like shames and others, other people. It's like you start mentioning female theologians instead of just male. You start quoting the mothers of the church, not just the fathers. You start every now and then speaking about the divine with female language because that's in scripture and it's, you know, it's helpful for people to feel connected. I can't tell you the number of people I've had who have come into my office and said, I never knew I needed to hear about the divine from a female perspective. Hmm. Like, I didn't know that was the thing that was missing. And I, yeah. my own voice feels stronger because I'm hearing it. Yes. And it's being intentional with like who you're inviting into a space. And then it's being aware, like when you're, the protection part does come in when you're at a table that you know will not allow women. Um, or, you know, all this really weird gendered stuff that we do, like um, is making a lot of assumptions, right? And so when you're in those places, and I don't think you necessarily shouldn't be in them, but have the mindset of like, I'm here to be a co-conspirator. I'm here to like, when something is said that's like, whoa, that that hits me weird. Like the invitation from the divine in this moment is for me to be, yes, I guess sort of the protector who says, um, yeah, that's not, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And because you're now like a disarming person in that. And so kind of those are the suggestions that I make and have as many women speak as men. And um, there's just a, you can tell when someone is doing it um, out of second nature and you can tell that people are like, you can tell the people who value just who you are um, at an essence and not 
aren't haven't gendered things. And hmm. I, I feel the same way about the fact that I get invited to tables that my friends who are LGBTQIA wouldn't be. Um, and so how can I hold that space with a sense of, you know, um, we're all just trying to understand and we're all just trying to walk home. And so how can we be gracious with the other and kind of invite them into change Yeah. and yelling at someone and like that from my experience has never been, I have had many guys who would surprise most people if they knew like what church they were from, come and talk to me a about me being a woman in leadership yeah. and be like about the fact that uh, they themselves have had spiritual struggles and, you know, because I'm more open with like, yeah, like it's Tuesday and I'm not even sure I believe in God, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and the idea of LGBTQIA inclusion, because we started a friendship and relationship when they felt safe at a table with me. And that has taken like me being at tables that I, I wasn't at first comfortable in. And you have to kind of gauge and judge your own thing. Um, but kind of recognizing that sometimes I've been the token woman and okay. Um, because I'm like accredited, whereas these guys, you know, it's one of those things where I notice in myself too, like if I'm mentioning that I have a master's from an Ivy league school, I probably am in uncomfortable in the space. And so then trying to like ground and root myself in grace and kindness, even in those spaces, because I can even hear my voice changing. Like I can tell I'm in a defense posture and just to say, okay, you know, instead we're going to meet um, fear with vulnerability. We're going to yeah. meet fear with like, wow, like, you know, sounds like there's something in you that's really being triggered by whatever it might be and kind of allowing myself to sometimes bear the brunt. So yeah, I know that's, that's a long answer to, there's so many little things you can do, but it, it really starts too with like watching women's sports with your kids mm-hmm. and like talking about women with verbs that you talk about men and talking about men with verbs that you talk about women. So saying things like, oh, he's kind and he's filled <laughs> imagine, with grace. Imagine that. Imagine right? using words but, like kind for men. I know, but we don't yeah. with kids, you know? Um, and my little- We and say I, things I like, learned, he's a good guy. He's which a good is, guy. Which is instead, instead of saying he's a kind person, we say he's a good guy. I mean, try to the number of it, times- yes my nephew would share and someone would say, oh, he's going to be a lady killer. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, weird to sexualize a child, but like, I also, get it. Also, like, the death, just... also the death part of that has always been a little yeah. weird. Yes. Yeah. But like, I also get it. Like, cause like we just say things. Cause sometimes we just say things we don't know what to say. Um, but I, I really realized when my niece was growing up, she's just aesthetically a beautiful child. Like she's, you know, curly blonde hair, big blue eyes. She looks like Nala from the Lion King when she was growing up, like just this, you know, beautiful child. And people would comment on it all the time. So we'd be out cause it was the South. My brother lives in the South and people are kind, they're just trying to be kind. And so they're saying really lovely things. And my brother said one day in a moment of vulnerability, like I'm afraid that, you know, she's going to go through the awkward teen years and it's going to stop. And she's going to feel like her identity was wrapped up in being the really cute kid. And, um, Hmm. you see that with Hollywood stars and stuff. Um, and he also said like, I don't want her to think that's her value. And so he really started being intentional with saying things like, wow, you're really strong or you're really smart. Yes. And 
complimenting her on things to sort of balance it out, to see herself as a rounded person. And, you know, we're going to screw kids up because that's just kind of part of it. You know, my joke with my parents is like, that's going to cost you $120 therapy anytime they say things. Yep. Um, But I think like when we're aware of like, what are some of the ways that like I've been taught to think about women? And, you know, I, I even realize in my self, I had a conversation with my brother one day where I said, Jonathan, like you have to understand I'm defensive sometimes because my whole life I've been like, I have to explain myself. And so when it comes to my family, sometimes I just want to be, I don't want to have to explain why I said the thing I said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being a woman in leadership, especially because I am quite tenderhearted, um, just as a personality, not because of gender necessarily, um, I have to like really be intentional with letting people know that like, Hey, like I heard this and I don't know if that's what you were saying. Um, but I have to feel safe in doing that. And so it's those people that I have that kind of relationship with. So I know that was a really long answer. No, that's great. Uh, Here's how, if you don't mind, I'd like to wrap up this way. And this is the thing I do with uh, guests off and on. There are words that are in the cultural lexicon, and then there are also words that are maybe in your lexicon. And we just words do different things in different contexts, do different things, different souls, and we mean different yeah. things by different words in, in in different contexts. So I want to throw a couple of things at you, and and a, a few. It's uh, one, two, three, four words at you, I think. Sure. Yeah. Um, and all your you're not responsible at all for defining or getting it right. I literally, it's just a matter of like you, you can throw a definition at it. We can just talk about this is what this brings up in your mind, but like I'll say a word and I just want you to kind of vamp on it for a moment and like what, okay. is, it, what is it? What does it draw? What does it draw out of you? What do you you mean by it? What is it? Improv. Meaningful? I'm ready. Oh sure, yeah. So um, what when I say the word church, what is what is church for you? What does church do in your heart, soul, mind? What do you think about when you think about church? When I think about my church, when I think about the word church, I think about just a gathered body of people. Um, and I think about, yeah, that to me, church, um, and I think I'm coming to a, a happier feeling about church, but church to me is a gathered body of people who are learning things together. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Art. Art is, uh, for me, life. (laughs) I think everything is art. (laughs) Everything is um, creation. And to me, it's the closest I feel to the creator when um, I'm regarding art or participating in art. Art is more than just visual. It's also music and all the things that make life worth life. Theology. Theology is just the study of God. Um, and it's, uh, theology is the idea of, um, trying to put a box around something that can't be in a box. And so theology is something you have to hold loosely, but I really value people who have done the work to learn the rules, to break the rules. Um, so yeah, theology is just us trying to make sense of things. Can you talk about whiteness? Whiteness, uh, whiteness is, uh, gosh, Mm. whiteness. When I think about 
for me, that's a almost a triggering word uh, when I think about what it's meant for my friends. Um, because for me, whiteness, if we're talking about ethnicity, whiteness is sort of a, a dominant culture, even not in a dominant situation. And so whiteness has, you know, what makes me white as snow can sound one way to me and another way to Will Gaffney. Um, Hmm. Whiteness can be this sense of rightness that isn't actually right. It's a, it's a, I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's a word I really, it's funny. My, my, like my, was like, ugh. Um, You know, I'm Caucasian, so I'm white. Uh, What does my whiteness mean? Um, And sometimes it's been really harmful for other people. And so, and yet it's part of my identity and what I am. Um, So whiteness is this complex idea and thing that we're trying to um, change its meaning. um, And I'm not sure we can, uh, but we can try to partner with, you know, making whiteness not be the, Mm. the thing that makes goodness doesn't make it equal. That's good. Last way, the last thing I want to add to this is, uh, yeah, kind of a similar thing. It's a, kind of an extension. Of, you know, I'm always evolving in terms of how I do this. But the when I was a really early on, when I was just the very very beginning of my like public career, I had a, a mm-hmm. mentor friend of mine in a really roundabout kind of not. <laughs> not so cool way at the time uh propel me to think about what the world around me and what i would look like 15 years in the future which was helpful uh because it helped me to detach a little bit from like the you know my my attachments to success and failure at the time i don't know how future-minded you are but if you if things go your way have you your druthers if if things yeah, if things, I love the word brother. It's a great word. Um what is what does the world around you look like fifteen years from now? What's different? What's better? Um what's you know, what are you still facing? What does the world around you look like if your work does in the world what you want it to do in the world? Um, what do you look like? What's your life look like? And what's the world around you look like 15 years from now? Can Do you have a vision of that? Do you have anything? Do you have seeds of hope for what the world looks like 15 years from now if you kick all of the ass that you want to kick between now and then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, people are, I really want to participate in the reclaiming of um, community and spaces. I think that's going to be really important, especially after all we've recently gone through, um, where, uh, we are helping ourselves be in conversation with people that are different than us and be in relationship with people that are different than us. Um, and so I would like to be part of dismantling, um, both physically and actually, uh, you know, socially, economically, all those, um, barriers that people have to participating in those things. Um, so the, what, what does that look like? So like my, my whole thing is I don't want our churches to become museums and not because I think like Christianity is the only way and you have to be, you know, but because 
really great transformation can happen in those spaces and places, but they're starting to fall apart, um, both physically and in their ability to understand the culture around them. And so, um, I have this giant vision for like doing queer eye for churches. I think the show queer eye has such an impact on people, both conservative and progressive to see the ways and places and spaces and assumptions we've made and like how changing our exterior can change our interior. And I want to be a part of that. Um, I like to beautify spaces and I mean in all ways, shape and form. So I see myself doing that. Um, I would love to have a family and I think that's been the missing piece in my workaholic nature. And so that's sort of, I'm trying to open up space for my own sense of whatever family will look like for me. Um, I mean, I have parents, which is great. Uh, so I'm hoping for that. And then the other thing that I just think is fun, I have had for the last, I don't know, we'll say 10 years, been looking at Airstreams, um, like pinning pictures of Airstreams, like looking at how people redo Airstreams. I love like actually with my hands uh, restoring and fixing things. I would like to restore um, some sort of Airstream-like thing and have that as something that I can use in traveling. So those are the things like for 15 years when I think about what it feels like, I would like to, yeah, I want to do that. I want to bring beauty and goodness into the world, but in a sense that it's already there and help people discover it. So in themselves, in their community, in the things that are already around them. Cause I think we spend so much time longing, um, instead of like, what would it look like to surface those things in the life and the space that we already are in? Um, yeah. So that's, that's good. I know those are really lofty, but 15 years from now. Yeah. And I think that's a great, oh gosh, I might have to journal about this later. That was really good. Good. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, thank you. I really, uh, I just so appreciate you and I love your work and um, I love just, we both have really goofy natures. Although we did a really good job being pretty serious, which is yes, ma'am. really great. Yeah. Um, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think when we talk about really serious things like how do we empower women, um, you do such a great job of being both light and, but also deep. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you would like to follow up with Sarah Heath, keep track of her podcast, her books, and her general musings online, you can find her at RevSarahHeath.com. That's R-E-V, and then Sarah with an H, Heath, H-E-A-T-H, dot com. Her podcast is called Making Spaces with Reverend Sarah Heath, and her Instagram feed is an utter kick in the pants. If you'd like to keep track of me, I'm at justinmcroberts.com. And if you'd like to help this podcast not just continue, but to flourish, you can visit us at patreon.com and just search my name, Justin McRoberts. We'd love to have you on the team. Until next time.